my, my voice is a little weak. I've struggled with, um, I don't know, some voice issue for the last week and a half. And I told myself, okay, don't sing. Just, just you know, engage your heart and, and save your voice. And I, I, I had to sing. I had to sing hard. So I appreciate you leading in, in songs that just lift up and exalt uh, the Savior that we've come to, to worship. Um, it's a great lead-in to what we're going to be studying but before we jump into that, we need, to, we need to set the tone. We need to understand where we're at in society and what society has to, to say and to offer and to um, influence us when it comes to a, a, a central question to who we are. And that question is this, who is Jesus? If you ask that question to any number of people, you'll get just as many answers quite often. An Orthodox Jew might reply that Jesus was a man who falsely claimed to be a Messiah and actually brought great uh, defamation to God and, and hurt to the Jewish way by leading so many astray following him. There was a particular collection of scholars called the Jesus Seminar who decided that they needed to figure out who the real Jesus was, and so they met together, and they, they looked at the Bible, and they uh, applied their, their critical theories and understandings, and they voted on what was real and what was made up, and who Jesus was, and what did he really say, and their final conclusion was that Jesus was, was simply an, an itinerant Jewish sage, a wise man, and a faith healer who was focused on the social gospel. Serve the poor, give of yourself, help, help those around you. There was a famous atheist named Christopher Hitchens, if you're aware of him. He said things like this, to believe in a God is one way to express a willingness to believe in anything, whereas to reject the belief is by no means to profess belief in nothing. He vilified the idea of God and as such, if he was asked before he died a few years ago who Jesus was, he would have replied he was a myth. He did not even exist. There are too many contradictions in, in, in everything that we see and know. It's just a made-up story by his words, Bronze Age idiots who didn't have the rational capacity to know better. And then you got guys like C.S. Lewis. And even I've been interested to, to hear and read that U2 uh, frontman Bono really agrees with Lewis and says that Jesus is either who the Bible claims that he is or he's an absolutely crazy loon. Just a, as, as Bono said, he's, he's a nutter. But if we take a plain understanding of God's word, we find the answer to this question to be astounding, to be overwhelming, staggering. The breadth and depth of who Jesus is revealed to be is truly breathtaking, but <clears throat> the problem with me, and if you're like me, maybe a problem with you, is that it's all too easy to recover your breath and to just continue on in life forgetting the scope of who our Savior is. And being a music nerd, I find music to be one of the best ways to keep things in my head and in my heart to keep concepts in my mind. And in this regard, a song we're all familiar with serves well. Who is Jesus? Sovereign Grace has a song, Glorious Christ. It says this, the radiance of the Father. Before the dawn of time, you spoke and all creation came to be. The molecules and planets reveal your great design and every one was made so we could see so we could see you are the glorious Christ, the greatest of all delights. Your power is unequaled, your love beyond all heights. No greater sacrifice than when you lay down your life. We join the song of angels who praise you day and night, glorious Christ. You left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth. And dwell among the outcast and the poor. You came to be forsaken and died to take our curse. So you could be our joy forevermore. Forevermore. 
You're seated now in heaven, enthroned at God's right hand. You've shattered death and freed us from our fears. And though we cannot see you, you're coming back again. And all will be made right when you appear. And all will be made right when you appear. This song calls to mind the person of Christ, the work of Jesus, our Savior, and extols him in his rightful place as, as sovereign, as exalted, and as imminently returning. And if you keep a song like this in your mind, a song that properly helps you remember who Jesus is, you'll probably find your thought patterns changing, your decisions being tweaked. Your, adjust, uh, your, your actions being transformed by this constant perspective reminder of who Jesus is. And the Apostle Paul seeks to accomplish something very similar to this in Colossians chapter 1. So turn to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. <clears throat> We're going to read, starting in verse 15, what is commonly accepted to be uh, a standard hymn of Christ, hymn to Christ, from the New Testament times. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. It says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, <clears throat> and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use your word this evening to explode our understanding, to magnify the picture of who Christ is, who our Savior is, who Jesus is in our lives and in our hearts, that our theology is informed, that our understanding expanded, but <clears throat> as a result, God, that our, our lives are transformed and you are exalted. Be gracious to us now in bringing about this end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's listen, as we study, listen to, to, to Paul as he sings, as he sings five verses of praise to Christ. In the first verse, Jesus is praised because he manifests God. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, which is in a sense a contradiction of terms. God is invisible. Invisible means you can't see it. And yet, something that is an image is something quite visible. That's the whole point. You can see it. So, something seen and something unseen are somehow reconciled. If God is invisible, how can he be known? It's because Jesus manifests him. Jesus images him. This word image has two senses, both of which are always present, but one usually kind of overwhelms and dominates the other, but they're both always there. Well, first one being a, a representative symbol, and the second one being an actual presence, an actual manifestation. So one is kind of a proxy, and one is the actual presence of what is being imaged. And this, in this situation, it's that second one, that actual manifestation that is dominant here. This is not, this is not a, a, a representation, a, a, a paper picture of God that if you punch through it, you can see the real God. 
This is the manifestation of God. Jesus is the presence of God on earth. I couldn't think of, I couldn't help but think of John's gospel <coughs> frequently as I was studying this passage. Look back to the gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's pretty clear. Word equals God. Makes sense. But then in verse 14, we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God is the Word. The Word is God. God has, is, is invisible, and yet God, the Word, takes on flesh and is seen in glory. Flip over to John chapter 14. John 14, verses 8 through 9 He's having a conversation with Philip. And Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, God, and it is enough for us. Jesus, ever, ever so patient, says to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, it's so clear that, that Jesus, even in his understanding, his, in, his, in his interaction with people said, look, you want to know God? Look at me. But it's interesting to think that God's second commandment to Israel was that they shall not make an idol. They shall not make a, a graven image. They should not make fashion, create anything to try to represent God. That was, that was blasphemy. That was forbidden by God himself. There was no representation they could create that would adequately manifest and represent who God was. There was no image for that. And so God gave them his written word so that they could understand him. And he continued to give them his word through the prophets. But then comes Jesus who is the image, he's the manifestation, he is the physical reality of God where there had never been one before. When you think about the, the quest for knowledge of deity in our society, how many people want to know, what is God like? Who is he? What does he think? What, what, does he, what does he do? What does he want? Christians, non-Christians, everybody asks that, but the answer really is easy. Do you want to know God? Then know Christ. It's that simple. Look to Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what his character is like? Then study Jesus. Know Jesus. Jesus physically manifests God as nothing ever had or ever will again until he returns. And we have a written record of God's actions while he was among mankind. What he did, what he said, who he interacted with, what he prioritized during his life, during his time here. That's amazing. Jesus is praised by Paul and ought to be praised by us because he manifests God to us. The second verse of this song is that Jesus is praised because he rules creation. Starting with the second half of verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn can either have one of two ideas, the first being made, okay, which leads to a, a, a long-time heresy called Arianism where Jesus, the second person of, of, of the Godhead, is, is subordinate and, and inferior and distinct 
from God the Father, the first person of the, of, of the Godhead, because he was created. Okay, so if we take firstborn to, to understand it in that way, <clears throat> that he was, the, he was the first in the order of all things created, then we end up in that swamp of nastiness. And we don't want to do that, and exegetically we, don't, we, would have to, we would have to just be utterly wrong to do that. The second possibility is a place of status. He has the first rank. He is the, the preeminent one of all creation. And this understanding is most appropriately, appropriate, and it's really, it's really kind of inescapable when you look at the following verses. Because the following verses have nothing to do with Christ being created, but everything to do with him being the most powerful, the most central, and the most important person in the midst, over and above all of creation. As the firstborn of all creation, Jesus is lifted up and distinguished from creation. So he's not part of creation. He is transcendent with regards to creation. And the four in verse 16, where it says, for by him all things were created, and goes on after that, that four is the explanatory note. It gives the reason that Jesus is exalted and distinct. He is exalted over and against creation because of his creative power. By him, all things were created. This gives the idea, with the Greek preposition that's used here, not just being the agent, not, not just being by him, the one by whom creation was made, but really in him. In the person of Christ, in the sphere of who Jesus was, all things were created. The creativity, the plan, the initiation of the plan, the power for the plan, all that finds its source and its, and its, its expression. It all comes from Jesus Christ. Again, think about John's gospel, chapter one. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Furthermore, he is exalted over and against creation because of his creative purview. That was his power. Here's his purview, the, the, the extent of the creation that he is exalted over. Because of his creation, he created all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. No, really, all things Everything. Paul goes to great lengths here to make his point. Both in the heavens and on earth. Two extremes. Everything up, everything down. Everything visible and everything invisible. Again, two ends of the spectrum. So both ends and then everything in between. Sort of the, the half visible stuff. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those are not necessarily distinctions made by Paul giving like ranks of power in the universe or in the spiritual world. He's trying to drive home the point that all the things that we might think are almost, almost independent or, or, or self-sufficient or, or, or powerful in and of themselves, they're created by Christ. Everything. Paul is simply trying to make sure he's covering every facet of what the Colossians understand has been created and is ruled by Christ. All things. So you can almost have a fresh look at Genesis chapter 1. Listen to this, with just a slight change as clarified in our passage. In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then Jesus said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness Jesus called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning 
one day. And you can go through each day like that and say, Jesus is the one who created. He has that power and that extent of which he did that creation magnifies and exalts him over and against all created things. And Paul praises him for that. And this is what Paul is trying to emphasize to the Colossians when they read of the creation account, when they look at the stunning world around them, when we read Genesis, when we look at the world around us, at the things that we can't understand, at the things that blow our minds in creation around us, then we look at it and we say, Jesus made that. They should consider, we should consider Christ and his handiwork. And just in case they, they missed the point, at the end of verse 16, Paul emphasizes it again. <laughs> he says, all things have been created through him and for him. There's that through him, that, that, that power of agency. Christ is the, is the channel through which that power flowed to create everything. A word spoke, bang, planet sprung into existence. Jesus' word was issued and plant life burst into bloom. All things have been created through him and for him. For him. It's an end goal idea. Jesus is the end goal of creation. Again, all of this is, is just Paul's way of, of exalting Christ, of praising him, and of, of, of distinguishing him from from stuff, from us, from that, from anything that you can understand or fabricate or create. The end goal of all things, all things created is Jesus. What is this idea of end goal? Creation as is the, the exact same as the act of, of our salvation. Creation and our salvation ultimately function as large road signs pointing, saying, look, look at Christ. Creation doesn't exist for creation's sake or even for our sake ultimately. Our salvation is not for our sake only ultimately. Those things point to Christ. When, well, some of you are gonna, gonna, gonna get the opportunity to do this in a couple of years, but when you walk into the Vatican, into that Sistine Chapel and you look up at the ceiling and you see that that probably one of the most, if not the most famous works of art in the world, you marvel at it, you, you examine it, you, you, you're, you're, you're amazed by it, but ultimately you think about the guy who painted it. Ultimately you, you marvel at Michelangelo and you think about the talent and the brilliance and how in the world did he get up that high back in that day and not die. But his, his, his ability and his talent and all those things expressed in that painting, and you go, man, Michelangelo was a killer artist. And that's what creation does. Creation directs amazement. It reflects glory and attention to the creator. Creation was made by Jesus and for Jesus He's just exalting Christ. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look at who he is. All things were made by him and for him. Verse 17 gives <coughs> two more facets of Jesus' superiority to creation. Let's look at this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. He is preexistent to all things. Before that term, that term before, rather, is best understood in the time sense, okay? Not in the sense of, of priority or rank, but in the time. Before this, Jesus. But that's interesting because it says he is before, okay? It's like, it's like me walking up to Bob and say, Bob, I is before you, you know? And Bob's got less hair. Well, no, I, you actually might have more, but yours is grayer. And so we know that that's not true. 
But Jesus is preexistent before all things. Does that whole I, I is, I am thing ring a bell? I am before. Think of the I am statements that Jesus said. When he told the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And they attacked him. Why? Because that was a claim to deity. Because only God pre-exists. But Jesus is prior to all things. When Jesus said, I am in response to the Romans' inquiry, saying, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth to arrest him. And he says, I am. And then in italics, you see in your Bible, he. But it's just, I am. And what's their response? Boom. They fall to the ground. The whole lot of them. Because of the power that's in that statement. Because of Jesus saying, I pre-exist. You think you can come and arrest me? I am. And then he goes with them willingly. Jesus' pre-existence of all things appropriately elicits from us exaltation and obedience. Paul's ultimate direction in this passage and, and in, the, in, the, in the subsequent passages is to say, Colossians, live Live for Christ. Live in light of who he is. Live in light of what, he, of what he says, how he teaches you. And so the preexistence of Jesus serves to draw out that exaltation from us, to draw out that obedience from us because Jesus is God. Furthermore, his preservation of creation ought to draw that same response. Jesus literally holds all things together. Second half of verse 17. In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. All things hold together. And there's this force in the universe called gravity. We've all experienced it, right? You tip over, you stumble, poof, gravity brings you down. But we also experience it even in the fact that the planets revolve around the sun in just so a pattern, in just so a proportion, a ratio, an equation. He's arranged the, the, the galaxies in just so a way, a, a distance from each other, that their, that their gravitational fields, if they, were, if they were tweaked just a touch, then planets would start to collide. And then galaxies would explode and everything would be gone. So gravity is experienced and measured, but it's not scientifically sourced or explained. Gravity is the superglue that holds our universe together. And gravity can be attributed to Jesus. Jesus holds all things together. Reminiscent of what the author of Hebrews says in a similar understanding of Christ when he opens his letter and he speaks of God who in previous ages had, had spoken through the prophets but now he's spoken through his son. And he speaks of the son whom God appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and he upholds Keeps it together, upholds all things by the word of his power. The word that said light, and there was light. The word of power that said animals. All those animals came into existence. So as Paul does here, we, we should be amazed. And we should respond in, in praise and obedience when we consider Jesus as the maker, the ruler, and the pre-existent preserver of all creation. As if that wasn't enough. In the third verse of this hymn, Jesus is praised because he leads the church. 
First part of verse 18 says, he is also head of the body, the church. It is, it's to my and, and often to, <coughs> to our chagrin that the church is often too man-centered. Gives too much glory to guys, girls in suits and outfits who speak well, who can put a show together. But the truth is that small pastors, as in pastors of small churches, mega pastors, as in pastors of mega churches, sometimes the things you write don't really make sense until you read them, then you go, oh, I should clarify. Pastors of small churches, pastors of large churches, elder boards, deacon boards, committees, leadership at a church, growth of a church, the reputation of a church are too often attributed to humans, attributed to men and women who get deceived to the point of thinking that it is their power, their uh, abilities, or their panache, or, or their capabilities that somehow build the church or create success. But Paul is quick to make sure that the Colossians and we know that not only is Jesus the supreme ruler of all creation, but Jesus is also the ruler of the entity that is his body here on earth. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head, the church is the body. What does a head do for a body? Pretty much everything. Without the head, a body doesn't do very well. The head nourishes the body. The head makes decisions to protect and to care for the body. The head uh, seeks to sustain the body. The head directs the body, turns it at its will. My hands might think they're moving of their own volition, but my head is telling them, move, hands, move. Everything falls under the direction of the head. No human is head of the church, whether the church local or the church universal. No pope, no bishop, no pastor, no council gets that glory or accolade. Jesus Christ does. All pastors and other human leaders are responsible to him as the head of the church, and he will hold us accountable. I pray for your leaders for that, but know that ultimately Jesus Christ is the head of the church. So when growth is seen, whether it's individual or corporate, when an impact is made, when, when success is perceived, when ministry sustenance is felt, when the ABLE initiative <clears throat> gets, those, get, gets those great numbers, when, when, when all that stuff out there brings in, brings in those things and, and we, we feel that joy to build up the church, to, to, to bring about effective ministry to the church, Jesus has used people for his means to accomplish what he wants for this church. And he gets the glory. And it's so kind of him to, to utilize us. And, and it's such a privilege to serve him. But he is the head. All honor goes to Jesus as the head of his church. <coughs> the fourth verse of praise that Paul gives is that he is praised because he pioneered the resurrection. <coughs> Second half of verse 18. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here Paul seems to encompass both the time and the priority aspect by using, using the, those uh, parallel terms where, where beginning would seem to refer to him as, as kind of the trailblazer, the, the one who initiated the resurrection the trailblazer of the resurrection into glory that all of us, all of God's children will experience. And then firstborn, which strictly seemed to clarify an understanding of his supremacy among those to be resurrected. We are not, as, as some religions would have us to believe, on an equal plane in the spirit world with Christ, whether in the past or in the future. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. Jesus is the preeminent one of those who will be resurrected. 
And we ought to praise Christ. We ought to praise the Savior more often because of this resurrection. Uh, Pastor Rick's comments this morning were, were appropriate. And I'm always on the lookout for songs that, that extol the resurrection of our Savior and all its implications. So if you ever hear of any good ones, shoot me an email. But what does Paul say in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, when he says look, without, without the resurrection, our faith is futile. It's nothing. We ought to be pitied if Jesus didn't initiate that resurrection. So think of Christ and think of his resurrection and praise him for initiating that, re- that ascension from the dead that we too will experience because we will start what he, conti- uh, we will continue what he started and we will be where he reigns and he is to be praised for that. That firstborn status of Jesus leads to the fifth reason that he is praised. This fifth verse of praise from Paul is that Jesus will be praised as supreme. As Philippians said, every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And, and here, it says he is the firstborn, the be, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? So that he himself, there's that, there's that intensive use again, right? Paul could have said so that he will come to have first place in all things. But no, he says so that he himself and him alone will come to have first place in everything. Jesus will be praised as supreme. Because of his death and ultimately his resurrection, Jesus is the culmination of importance and priority in all things, and this is the Father's plan. There's no, there's no weird inter-Trinitarian jealousy here. The Father is not a curmudgeon who begrudgingly shares his glory with the Son. Rather, it was, as we read, it was the Father's good pleasure <coughs> for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself See, God had been the recipient of Paul's thanks in the verse prior to this hymn, in verse uh, 14 and and, and prior to that. And so now he flashes, God flashes into view again as the superintending being over these events. God purposed the exaltation of Christ. It was God's pleasure to manifest himself, to manifest the, 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 the Trinity in the absolute fullness through Jesus Christ. And also through Christ to accomplish reconciliation. So God is okay with Jesus getting all this glory and all this preeminence and all this first place, firstborn stuff. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. That's an interesting phrase. That was an interesting phrase for me to, for me to study because my first understanding, my immediate grasp of this phrase was in reference to our salvation. You know, you read reconciliation and that's what you think. I've been reconciled. And that's certainly part of it, but look closer. He says, and, and to reconcile all things to himself. So is Paul here communicating universalism? Is he saying that uh, all men are going to be saved? Well, it's not even just all men, it's all things it's a neuter term meant to encompass everything. So, are trees going to be saved? Are whales, elephants, mosquitoes going to be saved? The mountains and the valleys going to experience salvation? And so I had to confess my shortcomings of my initial understanding of this phrase, to reconcile all things to himself. But that's the beauty of studying the Bible, right? You grow, you understand more. And your and your 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 understanding is is expanded. So when you look at reconcile, you understand that at at its core, it means mending a rift, mending something that was broken. And this rift, as we read, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So that rift, that reconciliation, the rift is mended. By Christ and his work on the cross. His sacrifice bridges the chasm between God 
and all things. But it's not salvation because all things aren't available for salvation. If it was, this would be universalism to like the, the umpteen quadrillionth degree. But it's not. The rift, which I thoroughly appreciated Pastor Rick's sermon on this, the rift is the corruption and distortion of all creation that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Think back to what Pastor Rick covered in, in, in Romans chapter 8. This world, as amazing as it is, is not what God meant it to be. As Romans 8 describes, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it to futility, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when we read of the reconciliation of all things, as Douglas Moo says, this is not a cosmic salvation or even cosmic redemption, <coughs> but cosmic restoration or renewal. Through the work of Christ on the cross, God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under the rule of his sovereign power. And so as I studied this, my mind was blown. And Christ exalted, which is Paul's point. Because, see, God in his power and in his sovereignty <laughs> has crafted a plan <laughs> so much bigger than me. So much bigger than you. It involves us. It involves the earth. It involves the solar system. It involves the galaxy. It involves the universe. And this plan is to mend the rift that sin has caused to restore it to a rightness of purpose and existence, to a relationship with him that reflects his original design in the Garden of Eden. This plan is put in motion and carried out by Jesus Christ. And indeed, it finds its culmination in the purpose of Jesus So that he himself, Jesus, will come to have first place in everything. Makes me think of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. In all wisdom and insight, God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, Jesus, get this, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Sometimes you just have to sit back and let your mind be staggered in awe at the majesty of our God. Truly his ways are higher than ours, his thoughts greater than ours. <coughs> when you study a passage like this, the application can be a little difficult because proper application is this. Go now and orient your entire life's passions and pursuits around the brilliant glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Go ahead. I mean, where, where, where's the list? Where's the 10 points? Where's the, the six things to check off your list? Uh, th those, those are helpful. Um, but it all starts with answering this question rightly. Who is Jesus. See, he is not simply a prophet. He's not simply a moral teacher or a great thinker. He's not a nutter. He's not a loony. He's not just an errand boy on a cross. And he's not even just our ticket out of hell and condemnation. Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, and the goal of all creation. Jesus is the authority and the leader of the church. He is the meaning and the pinnacle of our faith. He is the supreme being to be recognized in the restoration of all things. 
So we lift up our thinking and we exalt the person of Christ so that he dazzles our lives and causes us to, to respond in, in awe and in obedience and in zealous service because, folks, it is a privilege to know this Jesus now as we do. You realize that everybody will know him someday as he is. They will know that he is all these things. But it's only going to be in judgment for many. And if you're saved, if you're bought by Christ, oh, what a blessing to know Jesus as he is now and then to be able to take action on that, to, to, to be called his and to know him as Savior. So, so I call you, I call myself to live out this theology. Here's a few examples of how, as I was thinking it through even in my own life, how this kind of a theology of who is Jesus, who is my Savior, how it plays in a practical living. First, you just marvel at the gospel afresh. Because if that's how exalted Christ is, if that's how powerful he is and how, how amazing he is and how glorious and, and how striking and how, how wonderful he is, doesn't that just make all the more amazing the fact that he humbled himself to the point of death? He humbled himself to take on flesh, to become a man and to die a criminal's death and to bear the brunt of God's wrath at our sin that he did not deserve and we did not deserve to have given to him. Ah, magnifies the gospel. The greater that Christ is in our lives, the worse our sin is in our understanding because of how great the gospel of who he is and what he did became. Then I, I, th I thought of this book, Trusting God, that many of us are doing in our, in our care groups. I thought, of, I thought of just the fact that sometimes it's really hard to trust we get so wrapped up in our circumstances, so wrapped up in, in, the, in, in either the goodness or the hardship of what's going on that we forget. And yet, Christ is so exalted. It's, it's to, to, to say, well, look at my circumstances. I don't think God can handle this. I don't think, I don't know if I can really trust Christ with this. And you go, come on, man, you're, it's like putting a mouse next to a lion and saying, lion, I don't think you can handle that mouse. All you kids, you've seen Lion King, right? You know what Scar does to mice? Lions can handle mice. God can handle our lives. We can trust him in any and every circumstance and every situation because he is so great. So when you think about trusting God, step one in that might be, ah, I'm getting caught up in my, in my, in my, I'm getting caught up in my details of life and my circumstances. Get outside of that. Look at Christ. Oh. Somehow my, my circumstances seem more handleable now, manageable. Because I can trust this one who is so exalted and so praiseworthy. And I also thought of just this, this, this understanding of, of the centrality of Christ and the culmination of, of all things in Christ, of who he is. And I thought, man, sometimes we need to get away from ourselves, both in terms of our salvation and our lives and our pursuits in life and the way we spend our time, the way we prioritize our, our affections and our investments and, and all those things. The focus in our life's circumstances is not ourselves. It ought to be Christ. Because all things, our salvation and all creation, are to point to Christ. And so a hard situation is not about how do I uh, get through this? How do I manage this? How do I get out of this? A hard situation is how do I make my Savior look great while I'm in this? 
A good situation does, is not, oh man, this is so great for me. I am really enjoying the perks and benefits of this. A good, uh, a success, uh, a prosperous time is all about how do I make Christ look great right now with this, with this prosperity, with this blessing that he's given me because it all revolves around Christ. But it's so easy to get caught up in, in thinking that, oh, my life is about me. I'm talking to myself and I want to just want to smack myself a few times and just say, wake up. Look at who is Jesus and live. Live in light of that. Jesus is so great, so powerful, so gracious. And so life's ups and downs, all of it together, ought to result in one question. How do I honor him with my life. If you know him as Savior, that ought to be the, the driving focus. And we can all repent daily of the fact that it's not. And I, I will. And we'll, we'll, we'll get back on and we'll refocus our eyes. If you don't know Christ in that way, if you haven't repented and don't know him as your Savior, you will come to recognize these things, the truths of who Christ is at some point. At the judgment, if you die without repentance, you will come to know him that way. So young people, it's not too early. It is not too early to say, wow, that is who Christ is. I am so sinful in light of that. I, I, I repent, forgive me, and live for him. Older folks, it's not too late. Those who have lived, have lived a, a, a life of sin, it's not too bad. The forgiveness that he offers is so great and deep. And his majesty is so great. Take the chance. Repent and live for him as we all should. As, as we, as his his blood-bought, saved saints have the privilege to do now. Let's stand and pray. And then we're going to sing that song, Glorious Christ, as a bit of application. So, Chris, come on up. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We magnify you. We praise you. As being so high, <laughs> and, and worthy <coughs> of our praise and the obedience in every facet of our lives. Spirit, help us to keep these things in mind. Convict us of the times we stray. Bring these truths to our remembrance so that we will live with eyes fixed on our Savior, with hearts turned towards, towards, towards living in such a way that he is made great. God, I repent of the times when I am so small and selfish in my thinking. And as such, I, I, I degrade the greatness of my God. Give us each minds for this, hearts for this, going forward this week, so that in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in all areas, Father, you might be exalted and glorified by your children, the lights that you have put in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.